You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Democrats are hoping for a big blue wave this fall, one that will sweep them into power in Congress and stem some of the power of President Donald Trump. But are they doing the things they need to do and striking the right tone to convince voters to make that happen? At least one political observer says no. Gerard Alexander, a professor of political science at the University of Virginia, says too many liberals are smug and dismissive in the way they talk about politics and the president in particular. Think of comedian Samantha Bee's recent vulgarity about Ivanka Trump or last night's Tony Awards, where actor Robert De Niro went on a tirade about the president, repeating the phrase F Trump. Alexander says these kinds of attacks on the president suggest a liberal arrogance that could produce its own backlash. In a May piece on the New York Times op-ed page, Alexander said that liberals' belief that they're smarter than everyone else actually plays to the intentions of those who'd like to see President Trump and Republicans keep power. Gerard Alexander, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Yeah. So if you are a liberal, I think you read this op-ed and say, oh my goodness, uh, this is not... (laughs) This is not what I expected uh, from the current climate. Uh, one of the things that I think comes across really strongly in your piece is this idea of political insularity, right? That that um, that people, and in this case, uh, liberals in particular, live in a world where their worldview is reinforced at every turn, and that gives them maybe the wrong impression about how powerful that message or those beliefs really are. That's exactly right. Um, I think it it is, um, I think there are liberals who think of conservatives as living in their own bubble. They may live in a small town, they may watch Fox News, they may, um, you know, attend a conservative church, they may hear lots of reinforcement of their points of view, and obviously that can exist. I would only point out how many conservatives, though, if they've gone to college, that means they've read tons of books and took taken a bunch of courses with professors who clearly, you know, all, all of which clearly were not conservative. Right. Um, they follow um, mainstream news. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm a moderate conservative, but it's not like I don't listen to NPR. I know what the New York <laughs> Times, you know, coverage of things is. I went to college and am now in an, an academic myself. There's no way for me to uh, operate in America without hearing uh, liberal voices. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a, it, it's part of the enriching process of conversation in this country. But I do think that there are liberals, particularly, I mean, the stereotype would be what sort of coastal, you know, upper middle class, et cetera, in, in media, in Hollywood, in um, universities, who really do uh, forget just how much, you know, intelligent, um, you know, informed opinion there is out there that differs from their own educated, informed opinions about things. And the ways that they use their platforms can be off-putting to their audiences. And I think it's completely inadvertent. Um, but I do think that at times it can be uh, annoying would be a sort of a gentle way of putting it <laughs> off-putting or re- repelling. I don't want to say repulsive, but it can repel people. It can push them away instead of drawing them in. I don't doubt that those platforms have been used to attract people to liberalism and to accomplish some, some valuable things for our society, to educate Americans about a whole host of things. Mm-hmm. Um, take gay rights, the ways that shows like Will and Grace and other kinds of um, conversations and, and messaging and so on have been used to help change American opinions on that subject. 
it. But it can also be done in ways that, that push people away. And I use that image that this is going to, if anything's going to get Trump reelected in 2020, this is it. You know, a little bit of hyperbole to try to focal, focus people's attention on what's at stake here, the sort of things at stake. Yeah. Uh, what, what's the solution to this kind of insularity? And, and as you point out, it is something that exists on both sides of the political spectrum. Here, though, uh, it's it's the opposition, I guess, that that uh, that that is sort of uh, cloaked in that insularity yeah. and and believing that uh, it is more powerful, maybe than than it would be. But but I, what the frustration I hear from a lot of people who are uh, who are opposed to the president, for instance, is that you know the people who are, who support him are not open to reason. They aren't open to fact. They are they are the believers, right? Uh, right? And the people on the other side are the ones who are thinking this through. Uh, so so what's the what's the advice to those folks to try to convince those who are supporting the president? Well, it it is a it is complicated because if if you're convinced that the other side isn't open to learning, isn't open to facts, and isn't open to reasoned argument, then why waste your time? And I, I totally get that. The problem is we ought to be very slow to come to that assumption uh, about people. We ought to be very slow to act like we think that because when we do, we reveal to the other side that we are have a certain intellectual disdain for them or contempt for them. So we shouldn't act like that even if we do think it. And we ought to in my mind, be conscious, be, be cautious to even think it. Um, so, for example, we know that a very, very important segment of Donald Trump's electorate, one that probably helped him clinch the vote in certain states, was from voters who had voted for Obama twice and then for him. Right. Uh, the idea that we should just write them off, that liberals should write them off, I think is a very eccentric thing to propose to do. Secondly, I know a ton of Republicans who um, oppose Trump as the nominee of their party, right down the line in favor of, you know, a, a Marco Rubio or whoever else it might be. Um, and But when he was nominated and when Hillary was nominated in her own party, held their noses and voted for a candidate who they believed was going to appoint better judges or, from their point of view, or pursue better, say, tax policy from their point of view. The idea that we should just write off people like that either um, as being, you know, not open to reason or irredeemable is just, as I see in the article, it's not just bad politics. It's just it's bad facts. Um, those people are not close to those kinds of arguments. What what I think both sides have to do, here's the, the first starting point I would start with, is to accept, or at least act like, but I think we should accept, that there are a lot of people on, of go, acting on good faith on both sides. And by good faith, I mean we want many of the same things. We simply disagree on how to achieve them. We all want growth. We want job creation. We want, on the whole, a cleaner environment. You may not think that's true. I mean, you would sort of, you know, hypothetically, mm -hmm. a person might not think that's true of, say, an oil executive, but they should think, assume it's true of a suburban family. Um, they want, you know, uh, more harmonious and um, and just race relations in America. That may not be true of some, you know, fringe number of people, but it is true of an awful lot of people who celebrate uh, events like the election of President Obama, for example. Mm -hmm. We should assume a lot of good faith um, and proceed accordingly. The, but it, that's why my advice involves tangible things like um, if you believe that certain kinds of speech are harmful, then don't use those words or phrases yourself and explain why you're not. Hmm. But be very hesitant before trying to shove that down someone else's throat. Let them think it through for themselves. Um, if you don't like a speaker that's coming to campus, don't denounce them as illegitimate before the conversation even starts. That's not right or fair or, or smart tactically. Let them have their say and afterward hold your own event explaining what you disagree with and why they're wrong. All of those things signal a certain openness to conversation and, um, and civility. Uh, and let me give you one uh, 
I, I don't know which, there are a couple of examples mm-hmm. I can think of. I, mm-hmm. I hate to just keep rambling on, but it's what we professors do. Um, <laughs> one is that, that, that young woman in Utah in high school who wore a Chinese-style dress to her sure. prom the other week. Um, people who don't approve of cultural appropriation, something I must admit, I don't, I don't share their antagonism towards it. Um, but, you know, they had a choice. They could either try to have a conversation with her or just simply make their point and, and, walk, and then go back to their lives. Or... A, a social media horde could descend on her, berating her as, you know, make it, made it sound like she was one of the worst people who ever lived. That is not, that is a way to alienate people, to make them dislike you, not to listen to you. Um, but let me give you one last one that's very much from the political arena, not uh-huh. the sort of social one like that. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I'm, as I said, I'm a moderate conservative, but I'm, as it happens, very supportive of what used to be called gay rights, of, for instance, of same-sex marriage. Um, I was perfectly happy with the, the the, the big Supreme Court decision in Obergefell a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I watched um, LGBT groups litigate, not having, having won their big victory on gay marriage, um, uh, start litigating against relatively obscure, you know, pizza makers and cake makers, insisting that they had to abide by, you know, um, catering um, same-sex weddings, even if they, on principle, oppose doing that. And I have to say, I see the huge payoff from winning the Obergefell decision. I do not see huge payoffs from suing individual pizza makers uh, who seem to be relatively rare as caterers in refusing to um, cater gay weddings or uh, same-sex weddings. I just don't see what the payoff is. But what I do see is it had the feel of a victor shoving down a decision on people, even the holdouts who didn't want to celebrate it. And I just don't understand what the gains from that were. That's the kind of fight you do not have to pick. They should have taken yes for an answer with the great Supreme Court victory and left it at that. Let, mm. let America then work it through and think it through. And if there are a few who you know, don't celebrate it, just Leave them be. And I, I, I just, that, those are just, I know these sound like scattered examples. They are very different from one another. I appreciate that. But what they have in common is, um, you know, to restrain one's own instinct to educate, hector, pester, nudge other people when a lot of your principle can be expressed and conveyed in similar ways that don't alienate people. Mm-hmm. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Gerard Alexander. He's a professor of political science at the University of Virginia and the author of a recent op-ed in the New York Times titled, Liberals, You're Not as Smart as You Think. We are talking about liberal smugness, maybe we should call it, uh, the surety with which liberals sometimes talk about their point of view, uh, the way they think things should be here in America, and whether that might be inspiring a backlash in the era of Donald Trump. Could that affect the outcome of the midterm elections, for instance? Could it, a lot, could it affect the outcome of the presidential election, the next presidential election in 2020? Uh, Gerard, I, so I heard everything you just said there, and I think there, there's real power in, in the ideas behind it. But I guess, um, I, guess I, would, I, would, I would push back in, in, with some other specific examples. So You're a professor at the University of Virginia, uh, a place where we very recently saw how ugly the Trump era uh, is is likely to be for people who believe in equal rights and justice with the uh, the 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 march, the white supremacy march that took place there. Um, And I would also, I guess, with your example of the gay marriage case, I'd go back to the 1960s, for instance, uh, when uh, when we had laws passed and uh, and uh, you know to to try to erase 
some of the historical discrimination that's taken place in this country. What if in those contexts we said, well, let's not shove this down everyone's throat, uh, everyone who practices Jim Crow, for instance. Uh, what if we let individual shop makers uh, decide whether they want black customers or not? I mean, I, I think uh, as liberals, uh, the fear is that the power balance uh, in this country historically and in present has almost always been against uh, those interests and that uh, backing away from them is the way to, to sort of allow them to flourish. I mean, I hear what you're saying about not wanting people to feel as if they are pestered or bullied into believing certain things, uh, but uh, the, the administration of justice and fairness and equality in our society, I think, depends on uh, the law being on that side. How do you, how do you answer that? I think you're you're bringing up some really powerful points, um, and I I freely admit that I, you know I, I suppose at first at first blush I can make it sound like this is all very simple, like the lines are really easy to read. So take it for example, my advice about campus campus life: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. police your own language, but don't try to police someone else's, and explain why you're policing yours, but don't try to regulate their speech. That's I think a pretty easy one. Let a speaker speak, and then have your say. Those are pretty. I think, bright lines. But there are areas where the general advice I'm giving and the general point I'm making are, in fact, a lot messier. And you've touched on some of the messiest. Um, there's, uh, we know that civil rights legislation, like the 1964 Civil Rights Act, was criticized precisely in words that you know, sort of echo mine or anticipated mine. Mm-hmm. Why do you have to go so far? Couldn't you let people sort of catch up at their own pace? Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to pretend that, oh, no, here's exactly where they should have drawn the line or here. The fact is, sometimes when making political points, some provocation, some um, you know, giving the other side a bit of a shove is, is unavoidable, especially when it's in pursuit of sort of urgent justice. And I think there's a very good case to be made that big parts of, for instance, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, can be described exactly that way. They mm-hmm. were pushing people faster than they wanted to be pushed. They did find it very intrusive. Um, but uh, it, it's hard in retrospect to see that the, the progress could have been made any other way. And so I get that I'm saying let people catch up, and it, that can somehow, you know, that and sometimes seem like it'll take centuries, and I, I, I appreciate that point. And I freely admit that there is no harder area on this than the, than the race issue in the following sense. Um, not in the civil rights sense, but today. Um, one of the biggest divides in America, I think, is between liberals and progressives who see racial attitudes, bigotry, at work in many, many arenas. Mm-hmm. And conservatives see it at work in many, many fewer arenas than liberals do. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is that Liberals, therefore, call out racism in environments where conservatives believe that it's being, you know, exaggerated and um, that, the, that, that the race card, is, as they would say, is being abused and that they feel to be, you know, the, they're bearing the brunt of those accusations, including in many, many cases when they think it's completely unfair and not called for. Mm-hmm. The problem there is my advice is, is complicated, right? I mean, all of a sudden I'm telling liberals, what, you shouldn't call out racism where you're convinced it exists? What the heck kind of advice is that? Um, the problem there is I, I am, that's where I'm offering caution, not on how you talk, but even in how confidently liberals think. Don't, you know, be more cautious to come to the conclusion um, that bigotry is at work. Be, you know, be more charitable in your interpretation of things. And that is hard advice to take if you're 
have yeah. reason to think, and liberals and progressives sometimes do, have reason to think that bigotry is what they're looking at. I mean, and, and in the current era where you have a president who speaks, I think, in, in very uh, cunning, coded language uh, in a way that I think gives cover and power to people who want to do things that are much bolder uh, in the arena of, of inequality, uh, it, it becomes really hard, I think, to sit back and say, well, well let's give him or them the benefit of the doubt. That's right. And as I freely admit toward the end of the op-ed, Donald Trump makes it harder for me to make my case and for people to listen to it because he validates everything that liberal critics have been thinking, right? Yeah. He sees a sort of sum up to, to embody the worst of what they have feared is out there. I think there the mistake is to extend their feelings towards him, towards everyone who has voted for him or might vote for him. I don't doubt that out there is a faction that sort of lustily, you know, cheers every time he says the most outrageous, you know, uh, pungent thing mm -hmm. he can. Mm -hmm. I don't doubt that there were people out there who celebrated him calling immigrants animals when it appeared at first that he meant that about all immigrants. I don't doubt that there's that sector out there. We have every reason to, to believe that. that but, but there are tons and tons and tons of people who cast ballots for him, many of them while holding their noses, or who are I know many Republicans who are more prepared to vote for him in 2020 than they were in 2016, because huh. not because of his tweets, but despite them, not because of his you know, childish behavior, but despite it, um, but because they look at very cut-and-dried policy outcomes and say, look, I prefer these than some this very radically different want. ones. Those people, it is just political foolishness to extend the critique of Trump to every one of those people and to treat them the way one would want to treat him, to speak of them the way one speaks of him. That's the folly. So he, he deserves, he makes his bed. Um, he deserves the critiques he gets, um, both the, <laughs> the fair ones and even sometimes the unfair ones. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, my, my advice there is that it, is very, it can be self-defeating to just sweepingly extend that same reaction and language and criticism to everyone who might even cast the most casual of ballots for him. Down that road lies, I think, political defeat for liberals. Up next, we're going to continue our conversation with Gerard Alexander, and we want to hear from you. Are liberals too smug? Are they giving power to Donald Trump in his efforts to do the things that he's doing and maybe get reelected in 2020? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Gerard Alexander. He's a professor of political science at the University of Virginia. He recently wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times titled, Liberals, You're Not As Smart As You Think. We are talking about liberal smugness, the surety with which liberals assert that they are right about Republicans or President Trump or policy, is that likely to produce a backlash that would give more power to Republicans and maybe reelect Donald Trump in 2020? If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. What do you think of the way that people on the left talk about 
issues, talk about people on the right. Is that part of the thing that is making it easier for people on the right to retain power in America? And if you think that's true, what do you think the alternative is? Do you give a pass to some of the things that we've heard and seen from people on the right? Or is there a different way to address those things? You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Let's go to Fran in Redford. Fran, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Fran, how are you? Oh, fair. I'm, I'm, I've been listening, and I can't believe what I'm hearing. This is absurd. This whole premise is absurd. No one is is more smug than Donald Trump and his party. <laughs> you know, no one is more judgmental. No, no, no one is more offensive than Donald Trump and his current administration. You know, so to say that it's liberals that are too smug, mm-hmm. I mean, that that is absurd. There's there's enough smugness on both sides. <laughs> and it's ideal that we that we should leave it up to individuals to decide what is proper and what is improper. That's absurd as well. Mm. Just look at history. We so, friend, hundreds of, we have hundreds of years of history to show us that, yes, the smarter people need to be making decisions for the dumber ones. <laughs> OK, well, I, I appreciate the call, as always, Fran. Uh, and the and the comment, uh, Gerard Alexander, this idea that no one is more smug than Donald Trump, uh, I think, is is a powerful one. And I'd, I'd say that's pretty true. Uh, the, uh, one of the things that strikes me about it, though, is that it plays differently to his supporters than it does when it comes from from the other side. And I guess I'm not quite sure what what explains that uh, in every instance. He gets away with it, for instance. Uh, when liberals do it, uh, they get called out for being smarty pants. Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, Fran is right that there is enough smugness to go around. This is not our, you know, proudest or most attractive moment in American political history. There is mm-hmm. just, there's arrogance, there's accusations, there's judgmentalment, just, just like she said. So she's absolutely right on that score. But, you know, in a way, Donald Trump, I mean, if, I guess my response would be, uh, because he does it is probably a good indication that you shouldn't, um, that instead of being a role model or someone to, you know, say, well, if he does it, then why shouldn't I be able to get away with it? Um, l- look at the cost it's imposed on him. You know, one of his strange techniques is his ability to find certain language and certain issues that rile up, really riled up originally in his early primary campaign, a certain core constituency, but alienated just about everybody else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's worth remembering he did not even win a majority of all ballots cast in the Republican primary process. Um, And, you know, he alienated so many people along the way and didn't win a majority of the American voters. Um, And so I just don't think that that's, I think that's a, a cautionary thing for liberals to consider. The same things that are can mobilize your own base the most, that can often um, be the things that most turn off the other side, and even independence, the crucial independence. A friend of mine many years ago, um, uh, a very 
proud liberal, um, joked that he wasn't going to support Howard Dean when Dean was running for the presidential nomination because, as he put it, um, I like him so much that I, I figure he must be a bad idea, meaning I know I don't represent the median voter in this country, right, mm-hmm. the, the sort of centrist voter who decides which way the election goes. And if I like him this much, that must be, he must be a bad idea because he must not be right at the center of American politics. And I think that's a very wise humility to, for, for us to have to say if something energizes us, really makes our blood boil, either with anger or, you know, joy, it's, you know, cramming something down the other side's face or, you know, slam dunking them in, on a, like at a basketball court, that if it's that satisfying to us, the chances are half decent that it's something that turns off the other side. a lot of moderates. Yeah. And that it's a very hard pill to swallow, but we have to remember... In politics, in, in most of human history, it's very rare that the politics that you or I or anyone else might love represent a majority of any country's electorate. That's just humanity is so heterogeneous. Politics in every country and almost every time period are so complicated and fragmented and made up of so many different kinds of people that we almost always have to settle for less than we'd like. That's the human story. Yeah. And uh, if it's that gratifying... There, you're probably excluding some voters who you otherwise might have come your way, off. and that's sure. sort of my. I know it's not very exciting advice. Yeah, uh, let's go to May in Detroit. May, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, uh, thank hey. you for taking my call. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the professor was saying that despite Donald Trump's statements and despite how offensive he is and his Twitter comments, conservatives and many other people, you know, still voted for him and are planning to vote for him again. I guess my question is. Why aren't the American people demanding somebody better? I mean, why are they just allowing this to continue on? Yeah, May, that's a great question. Uh, Professor, uh, what's the answer? It is a great question. I I certainly know Republicans who couldn't believe that Trump... started to do as well as he did during the Republican primaries in 2016. Um, They switched from someone other than him to someone else other than him as they fell like bowling pins trying to find one who could stop him. Mm -hmm. And after the Indiana primary, when he, you know, really seemed to sew it up, um, they very grudgingly accepted that he was going to be the nominee of their party. They didn't see anyone who could stop him. They didn't see a party elite or establishment that could stop him. And they very grudgingly decided to vote for him for judicial appointments or for whatever it might be. Now it might be tax reform or some other things. Um, But, you know, we're handed relatively few levers, each of us, to really affect that. I must admit, I also know a lot of Democrats and liberals who were never particularly enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton as their nominee. They thought that she was not going to excite Millennials, they thought that she was not going to bring out a lot of voters the way her husband had, the way that Barack Obama had, for all kinds of reasons, personal charisma and many other things. So you could just as well ask how come they didn't demand better. And the answer is, in a two-party system, in a you know country of 300-odd million people, uh, we end up often recognized, resigning ourselves to sort of limited choices. And right. um, I have to say, I, I know that... The only thing more amazing to me than how uninspiring the two major party candidates were in 2016 is how even more inspiring the third party candidates were, which is why they didn't take it. They weren't in a position to take advantage um, of the, of that you know, sort of historically unexciting two major party candidates and score a historic high for themselves. They didn't even do that. I mean, we. Um, it, it, it is true that you sort of do wonder sometimes in frustration. Am I really the only one? who's this dissatisfied, but I think that's unfortunately pretty common. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Michelle in Ann Arbor. Michelle, I've got about two minutes left, but I wanted to get you in here. Welcome to the show Hi. today. Yep, go ahead. 
Hi, thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to say that my wish would be that we someday vote more on principles over personality, um, whether it's somebody who's boring or somebody who's charismatic or what have you. Like the very foundational principles of our country right now and basic decency and international order are at stake with this president. And I would just hope that anybody with any decency and conscience hmm. and concern for our democracy would vote for a Democrat this time, because I, I think it's not about personalities. It's about there are some very foundational principles that are at risk right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Michelle, I uh, appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Let's uh, quickly go to Robert in Detroit. Robert, I've got about a minute left, Robert, but I wanted to make okay, sure we I'm got to sorry. you. Um, go ahead. I, I just think that, you know, we see progressives as more idealistic and, and they cling to this, this idea that uh, facts and science are important. We have a lot of people being homeschooled today, and they, they do that because they're against evolution. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have cancer and, and other illnesses, and we see cutting uh, funding for science. And, and people just can't understand that. That's why they're kind of smart. They just think it goes against reason because you're voting against yourself. Yeah. Uh, uh, Robert, uh, thanks very much for the call. Uh, and the comments there. Okay, Gerard Alexander, professor of political science at University of Virginia. Very interesting conversation you inspired here with your uh, op-ed in the New York Times titled, Liberals, You're Not as Smart as You Think. Thanks very much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's going to do it for us today. We will be back tomorrow, and we are going to start talking about Michigan Central Station here in Detroit. Announcement this morning that Ford Motor Company will take that over from the Maroons, make it part of their empire. That will be a very interesting development here in the city of Detroit. We will start discussing it tomorrow. Uh, Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. Program director is Joan Isabella. Technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. The associate producer is Gus Navarro. And the Detroit Today theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. Remember, if you miss any of today's show, you can hear it and all other past editions of Detroit Today on the Detroit Today podcast. Go to iTunes or wherever you find podcasts, download and subscribe, and you can listen when you are ready. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. See you tomorrow.